Welcome to How to Build a Village. I am so honored to welcome Joe Lynham, an award-winning BBC World Service broadcaster and correspondent with a proven history in TV, radio, and online media. He's also a well-respected conference speaker and moderator who uses his 20 years of experience in international business and politics to host webcasts, keynote speeches, and real and virtual debates. I had the honor of working with Joe at the BBC, and I'm so privileged to welcome him here from his sunny garden in West London. So welcome, Joe. Jill, I think you were actually my boss at one point. I think you were the output editor and I was um, a mere producer or one of the lowest rungs in the ladder. And I think I had to be nice to you back then. When <laughs> maybe it was 15 years ago. I don't know. It's a, it's a good while ago. But I think at one point you were my boss. Well, well I, I, I certainly like to think of it that way. Well, you certainly were... <laughs> Very nice, whether it was because I was your boss or not. But I've always admired your broadcasting prowess. So it's so great to have you on the oh, podcast. Oh, you're very kind. You're saying all the right things, Jill. You're saying all the right things. Well, and I, I'm also intrigued because, of course, you do. You're you're a, a proud Irishman living living in London. And first, I'd like to start. What what brought you to London in the first place? Well, I only came for the job. Amazingly, I had very little to do with the UK. Uh, before I actually got a job in Britain, um, I had I didn't really know Britain. Uh, I had never really I I visited for the odd you know weekend or something, but I didn't know the culture or the people or uh, even the geography of London. You know, east, north, whatever it is. So when the Guardian advertised for a job as a broadcast journalist, which is a fairly junior producer in the BBC. Mm. I had loads of experience of living and working in continental Europe, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Belgium. Uh, and I spent some time in Australia and the US, but had very little exposure to the UK. But it was my dream job. And I had always wanted to be a broadcaster. Uh, I come from a family of broadcasters and storytellers. Um, my father was uh, the show jumping correspondent uh, for um, RTE, the Irish National Broadcaster. Um, back in the day when show jumping was, you know, on national television with audiences of like 20 million people. Now, you say that to young people now and they will scoff at the idea of watching show jumping. But show jumping and snooker was huge in Britain and in Ireland uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And my dad was show jumping correspondent for RTE. So I had that and my dad's first cousin or my uncle uh, is Des Lynham, who used to present Grandstand on BBC. So he is a broadcasting legend as well. And before them, the whole Lynham family were storytellers. And broadcasting, as you know, Jill, is storytelling. It's basically telling a story in a concise and interesting and short way, <laughs> um, waffling or wandering or deviating or losing your audience. Um, so I always wanted to do this, especially when I saw my dad do it and saw my uncle do it. Um, and when the dot-com era happened, and again, younger listeners won't know what the dot-com era is, but it was the late 90s, early to very early 2000s, when companies that had no revenue or earnings were valued at billions of dollars. Now, this will ring a bell right yeah. now if you are a market watcher. Um, the companies that might have links to cryptocurrencies are worth billions, but they have no trading income. Mm. Anyway, this is uh, 1999, and I set myself up as a technology journalist, technology broadcaster, technology correspondent. Uh, the only minor problem, Jill, is I didn't know anything about technology. Uh, so I hired um, my 
buddies from university who actually worked in technology. I didn't hire them. I basically uh, bribed them with two bottles of wine and some uh, tortilla chips. Uh, <laughs> Took them back, uh, went back to one of their my mates' uh, apartments, and um, I said, right, walk me through the key players in technology and what I kind of need to know by way of trends. Mm -hmm. So two and a half bottles of wine later, uh, I, went, I sat down and uh, wrote a piece, which I then offered up to um, kind of a major ma magazine called Business and Finance in Ireland, and set myself up as a journalist. But then when the dot-com era became the dot-bomb era, when all those dot-com companies um, basically were found out for being completely valueless entities and they disappeared, so did all the advertising revenue. And I was faced with a pretty blank page uh, in terms of ev revenue streams, but a mortgage to pay. Mm. I um, basically started scouring around for any sort of jobs and I saw the Guardian advertisement. Didn't think that anyone got those jobs, Jill. I thought those jobs mm -hmm. were just kind of pre-filled and then they just went through the motions for uh, the trade unions, et cetera, and for legal purposes. Um, but I applied nonetheless, did an absolute dreadful interview, which I call a car crash interview. And Why? amazing. Well, I, I basically, I, I rambled. And in the course of the interview, they were talking about the output in BBC business. Um, and they were talking about programs that I didn't watch or didn't listen to. And I had to admit, I don't watch and don't listen to, you know, three quarters of what you make. <laughs> and yet here I am asking for a job with your organization. It's very poor preparation. I would definitely not advise that sort of preparation for other people. Um, but I did kind of share with them my other life experiences, including running a chain of pubs uh, in Germany, um, you know, having lived all over the world and done various different things. And amazingly, they gave me a six month contract. And um, I moved over then to answer your, your, your short question with a very long answer. I moved over there not knowing a single person, Jill. Literally, I arrived at a house in Chiswick and I didn't know where Chiswick was. I literally just told the black cab driver, take me to this address, please. <laughs> and so, so those early years, how, how did you find your, your niche in London? You found your, 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 you were already a, a born storyteller a born broadcaster how did you then find your your social niche how did you how did you make london home that, that's very good now when people are rock up in in a strange country um they usually go for their own sort as in hang out with their own sort uh, and if they're from another country they would seek out people especially in a giant city like london you can always find your own sort or your own type of people whether it be that in social terms or national terms um i didn't do that because i didn't want to be the the cliched ghettoed irishman uh, because my perception of britain was one of british people not liking irish people i had Remember, as I said, I had no experience with Britain. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know that Irish people were very well accepted in Britain. I actually thought it was the exact opposite because, um, you know, the IRA campaigns and, you know, uh, terror attacks and all that kind of stuff. And I got that completely wrong. Uh, Londoners especially are incredibly welcoming towards Irish people. Mm -hmm. And I subsequently found out that um, my Irish accent was actually an advantage, a plus. And certainly if you were an Irish lady, you went into a bar, you deliberately raise your voice so people could hear that you have an Irish accent if you were looking someone to get chatted up. 
amazingly. Uh, which, no, I, look, as you've probably guessed, Jill, I'm not a shy guy. Um, no. I go out, I'm happy to walk into a room of strangers. And I know a lot of people that would struggle with walking into a room of strangers, but I do not. And I love meeting new people. I'm happy to ask questions to them all day and just going, well, why did you do this? And what happened then? And blah, blah, blah. And so I, I kind of built up a social circle pretty rapidly. Now, even though I was the lowest rung of the journalistic ladder in the BBC when I joined, we get invited to, and Jill, you will remember this, certainly from mm. your BBC and CNN days, we get invited to all sorts of nice things. Mm. Drinks, receptions, launches, all sorts of publicity nonsense, paid for by companies. And um, they're desperate to tell, the PR company is desperate to tell the client that they have a BBC journalist arriving, even if it is, you know, a meet and greet uh, from the BBC. Um so I went to, along to all these social occasions because remember, my social circle started with zero and um, you build up friends along the way. And um, I was very lucky in that respect that um, I was invited to all these lovely things and I wasn't a shy person uh, and I had no language difficulties. Um, whereas mm -hmm. if I had arrived from a very different place and my language skills were poor and my personality was different, uh, I think it would be very tough to be honest with you. Very tough. It definitely, you definitely have the personality that lends itself lends itself well to 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 meeting people. And now that you've been, so you've been here for years now. Twenty, twenty years exactly this month. Oh, happy happy anniversary! <laughs> so, talk to me about how you met your wife and how you think of yourself as a, a, as an Irishman first and a Londoner second, or do they both have top billing when you describe who you are and where you're from? Um, well, I can do the nationality one very quickly. I'm a very proud Irishman. Uh, mm -hmm. I, um, even though my friends in, back in Ireland say they rib me for my slightly anglicized pronunciation, but when you, when you do news packages for BBC Radio 4, you must enunciate your syllables, and that tends to dilute uh your your natural accent like you wouldn't like if i spoke to you only with the dublin accent all the time you'd barely understand what i'm saying and i'm I, and i'm leaving out all the choice anglo-saxon words that i wouldn't ordinarily be using uh, if you know what i mean so i didn't have that strong dublin accent anyway but my irish friends do rib me by saying oh, i remember you when you were irish i remember those days um whereas my british friends and probably my american friends uh, say um no you're very clearly an irishman you know with my accent so um uh ribbed by both sides um i very proud of my irish identity and um I hope to at one point go back. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, I, I, I don't really ever describe myself as a Londoner, to be honest with you, but I am a Londoner. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, millions of people are. They have a passport which says one thing, but they have a location which says another. And uh, London is a fantastic city. It is a very open city. There's always something to do. And um, it is what you make it. And it it's been a home for me for a very long time, and I've made some great friends along the way, friends for life uh, that I will, no matter where I live, will remain my friends. As for how I met my now wife, uh, I was uh, a reporter for the BBC in Brussels, 2006 and 2007. And um, I was invited to a pub quiz, or I did a pub quiz. Again, I love pub quizzes, or uh, media quiz, whatever they're called. And I was seated beside some very attractive blonde lady from Estonia. And um, I started chatting to her. Uh, and 
then a few weeks later, it was a kind of a, a start of, she was, she was hosting a party and my friends who introduced her, both of us just to, as friends, uh, told her a lie that I was very interested in her and keen to come to this birthday and told me a lie that she was very interested in me and was very keen that <laughs> I came to this party. Uh, both were porky pies. <laughs> And uh, but I went along to this party and uh, she was hosting and she's a very sociable person and uh, easy on the eye um, if these things are important to you. And I um, asked her out there and then to go ice skating with me. And uh, we started we went out and I broke my Breitling watch on the ice rink. Oh, wow. So I certainly won't forget that particular first date. Uh, But we started dating for a while and did the whole distance thing. And uh, then I went back to London and I persuaded her to give up her life in Brussels uh, Mm. to move to London, which she duly did. And uh, uh, I suppose the rest is history. Um, We are blessed with two great boys, two lovely boys, blonde, very Estonian uh, hairstyle, at least. And uh, we got married uh, in 2015. I, de- I needed basically, I needed proof that she could give me not one, but two heirs to the throne, Jill, uh, before I would part with the diamond ring. And once she produced two healthy male heirs, I said, okay, all right, whatever, let's do it. Now, yeah, obviously you're a wonderful storyteller. And one of my favorite stories that you've shared with me was the birth story of one of your boys, the surprise Sean. story. Could you share that one, which is fantastic? Yes, Sean uh, is our little pocket rocket. We call him because mm-hmm. he, he's he's not he's not huge, but he's full of energy, um, and he was so full of energy he was determined to be born really when we weren't ready. Um, so when when the time came for Sean to arrive, which was June 2013, um, Rena had started going into very very mild labour really mild labor as in the odd contraction here, the odd contraction, but no, no continuity, no flow, no regularity. Uh, and then as we retired to bed that night, uh, the contraction started intensifying, not the distance between them, but the pain. Uh, so we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make our way slowly into the hospital. Because mm. normally what you're advised to do is contractions have to be a certain time frame between each sure, one sure. before they get uh, ask you uh, uh, to come in. So I got in the car. Now, luckily, I decided to put a towel down where Rena was sitting in the front seat. Lots of foresight. That's great that you thought to do that. Especially since your heart is pumping, you know, because, you know, you're you're about to to set off on a journey and you know you're going to add to the population uh, potentially in the very near future. (laughs) Um, So anyway, in the course of the journey, the the pain became really intense. Hmm. And uh, she insisted that we um, give birth to the baby in Chelsea and Westminster. And we had moved to Ealing. Uh, mm-hmm. For those who don't know London, it's, it's that's a fairly central-ish, traffic-filled journey. Um, so we got on the A40, and by the time we kind of turned off heading towards uh, towards uh, Shepherd's Bush, she was in agony, absolutely gripping oh, my hand. It must have been so and, stressful for her, and also for you driving. Remember, she didn't even have so much as a you know uh, an aspirin or a Panadol. Mm. She had no painkillers whatsoever, <sighs> and the and the pain was excruciating. And then she said when we were just about to turn onto the Earl's Court Road, for anyone who knows uh, uh, London, um, I can feel the baby's head. And I, and oh my God, and you're, oh my God, am I going to lose this baby? Are we going to lose, not I, are we going to lose this baby? And she's gripping my left hand Mm. 
uh, and I'm trying to drive with my right hand and call the hospital at the same time to kind of to meet us at the door. So we were calling the hospital, no answer. Oh, no. uh, and in the meantime, she said, I can feel the baby's head. He's coming. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. So I um, so I put the boot down and um, drove at 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers per hour uh, through red lights, uh, hoping that the police would stop me. But where's the police when you really need them? <laughs> and of course, we drove past uh, Kensington Police Station, but absolute silence. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was like a video game, weaving between cars, weaving between the cars uh, w- with my right hand whilst my wife was crushing and, and in dreadful agony. The poor woman was in mm-hmm. agony, uh, in, 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 gripping my left hand. And um, we arrived outside the hospital and she is in serious pain. Mm-hmm. And um, I get out of the car and I stupidly turn back to her and say, don't move as if she was going to go anywhere, you know. <laughs> so I started banging on the hospital door and it was one of those security doors because it was oh, two no. o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, Friday night, guy banging ferociously on the front door, Irish accent, must be drunk. <laughs> uh, and, and the security guy, you know, and they're, they're not they're not hospital. They're just orderlies. They're not they're not, you know, medical staff. Um, kind of looking very skeptically. They're looking at each other. So do we let this idiot in or what, what happens? And it's a security door whereby the front bit only opens once the back bit is sealed fully like a bank. Oh, no. Uh, and I thought, there's an effing baby being born in the car. Come out right now. <laughs> and I lost all my cool with these guys. And um, then they came into the security door and we had to wait for the back one to close. Oh, no. And then I ran back to the car. And there was Sean. Oh 45 seconds old, eyes wide oh. open. And the two of them looking at me as if to say, where the hell were you? <laughs> and uh, and I have to go back a couple of seconds because the very act of birth was amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in such awe of, of what women have to go through. Um, but Rena, she said, absolute zen-like calm descended upon her. She, as if she'd been pre-programmed for centuries to know what to do in that moment. She said, as the baby's head came out, she reached down into this, this the footwell of the car, front seat, swiveled his head around so his shoulders could come out and that she, she could grab him. And then she grabbed him out, put the baby, little Sean, on her, on her chest, wrapped her dress, it was a summer's day, it was June, uh, around him to keep him warm. And then she said she knew to put her fingers in his mouth so he could take his very first breath. And I still get emotional when I think about it. She knew all of that in the space of one minute. And he took his very first breath. And as I came out, I said, is he okay? Is he okay? He's fine. And it was just amazing. And then all the orderlies and the medicals and the doctors and the birthing kits and the green smocks came out of the hospital. So suddenly there was a dozen people surrounding the car and the whole hospital was buzzing about this car, this baby that delivered right in front of the door. And uh, one of the uh, nurses or doctors said, would you like me to park your car so you can go up with your wife? Mm. And uh, I said, you know what? There's a dozen of you. I'm not going to make any difference she's in good shape baby's in good shape i'll park my car and survey my own damage and uh so i parked the car in the underground car park and um i'm a bit embarrassed to say it now but i took the towel which was obviously quite stained and just literally put it in the bin there so some poor guy collecting the rubbish in the underground car park 
had to, had to come across that. <laughs> it's just not great. Uh, and then just to complete the story, um, once Rena had been checked and Sean had been checked, uh, we, um, I tweeted out that um, my amazing partner, because uh, we weren't yet married, um, has just delivered the, the baby herself in the front seat of the car. My good friend, Evan Davis, picked it up. He was presenting the Today program. Uh, he picked it up, tweeted, well, are you going to call are you going to call the baby Granada or something like that? Um, but it was an Astra. So we were thinking about calling him um, Ad Astra to the stars. Um, and um, then it just took off. And the Evening Standard saw the tweets and got in touch with my mom because uh, she'd he'd somehow Googled and found out that I did some work for my mom's charity, called my mom in Dublin at six o'clock in the morning. Now, I'd already called my mother to say, you know, she's a grandmother again and everything's fine. Um, and um, then he got in touch with me, did an article about it. It was front page of the Evening Standard. It also made the Daily Telegraph. It made the Daily Mail, the Arab News. I got calls from all over the world. And so uh, Sean was a superstar before he was even three hours old. It, it's just so funny that you've had this career in the public eye for the past 20 years. And, and, and that this is and but this was the one that seemed to capture the imagination yeah, I mean, world. I broke I've broken a lot of stories, Jill. But if you Google me, um, <clears throat> and I'm <clears throat> not too proud to say that I have Googled myself, um, <laughs> the story that usually comes up is the car story, and um, it's a lovely story. And I'm very proud of Rena for how she did it, mm-hmm. and um, and Sean's <clears throat> Sean's still a great guy. You know, he's a lovely little boy, and uh, just dropped him to school. In fact, oh, so here you have this international family. Would you ever go back to live in Dublin? I think I would. Funny, if you had asked me when I moved over here, I would have said, no, and I'm happy now here. And I I, I like it, like this new life, this new giant city and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the Ireland that I left 20 years ago, Jill, and I know you talk to people about the big life changes that they make in their life, um, is unrecognizable from the Ireland of 2021. Um, the Ireland that I grew up in was a theocracy uh, in which the Catholic Church had a hegemonic influence, unbelievable influence. It ruled education. It bullied politicians, definitely bullied people. I didn't grow up in a very um, conservative family. My mother was quite liberal, all Catholic, but she was quite liberal. My mother's story is a fascinating one. And, uh, you know, maybe you want to talk to her at one point. Uh, She was the very first pharmacy. My mom was a pharmacist or a chemist, as some people call them. I think the Americans call them drugstores, who sold condoms over the counter in the Republic of Ireland. Now, you might laugh and scoff at that, but that was A, illegal, and B, a big, big deal in the Republic of Ireland in 1981. That is a big, big deal. Um, uh, Women who uh, had sex before married were often carted away and put into these awful laundries called Magdalen laundries and treated dreadfully socially treated dreadfully so but my mother um was conscious of the fact there were so many women who'd had huge families and didn't want any more kids you know, they might have had five or six or more kids and they just i just don't want any more and so she this uh, this is a fascinating story and i think it's worth a screenplay she went up to east belfast the home of loyalism people who are not very keen on catholics usually not very keen on nationalists and she persuaded them to send condoms in unmarked brown paper bags marked, well, marked with 
female products. And as a result, because of Ireland is such a squeamish place, the customs officers wouldn't touch anything that was called female products. And she brought down these packages and um, soon discovered that there was huge demand. So when she built up a rapport with her customers and she, she knew all her customers because it was kind of a suburban pharmacy, everybody knew everybody. Um, she suddenly just said there was a huge demand for this thing. And at, at first they remained in the safe they remained in the safe. That's how kind of dodgy it was. And then she said, no, we have to do a public service here. And she put them out um, behind the counter so that uh, customers can come in and they could see uh, these products. And I grew up in that Catholic Ireland and I too was ashamed of the S word, ashamed. I can remember one incident so well. It's difficult to explain it on audio terms, but anyway, we'll have a go. Guys will come in, super embarrassed, shuffling along. They've been sent in by the wife, basically said, if it's not on, it's not on, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and they've been sent in, uh, or, or as they probably say in other parts, no glove, no love. And uh, they've sent in and said, if if you don't get those far, if you get those rubber johnnies in knockline pharmacy, you're not getting anything. So anyway, um, Sean or Michael or whatever it was would come in and see spotty faced teenager me, and being the only man maybe behind the counter, and would kind of motion over my shoulder, and I and I look behind me and, and is he, does he want to buy a film or does he want to buy Panadol? painkillers or something and he would order one of those and one of those and then he'd point at the other things uh, which were the uh, condoms and um, there was various different styles or you know variants of them and I would run my finger along the line as to which variant was it extra safe or feather light or gossamer or whatever it was and then he'd nod at whatever one and once the product went in the bag Jill Everybody breathed again. Everybody breathed again because the awfulness was concealed. How old were you at this point when you were working behind the counter? Uh, 13 or 14. Wow. 13 or 14. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's against the law now, but in 1983, it probably wasn't. Um, also, it was your family business and you had to help out and all that kind of stuff. So, you mm -hmm. know, I just do a few hours a week. You know, it's sure, not as if sure. I was yeah. doing anything. And I was delighted to get the extra money. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so, she, so that's the environment that I grew up in, a very Catholic country, but a very open minded family. Uh, and that continues to be the case uh, today. My mom, thank goodness, is still healthy and well in Dublin. You mentioned a charity that your mom works for that you had helped out with. That's right. Cara Malawi. Um, my mom set it up herself. Uh, she is one of those dynamic people who never likes to sit on her fingers or just read a book. Um, she went she sold the pharmacies and then she decided to do a master's uh, in humanitarian development. And then she opened a charity to help the people of Malawi. And um, she opened up that charity called Cara Malawi, which is the Irish word for friend, friend of Malawi. So she's been doing she did that for about a decade. And I had the honor of going to Malawi to see her in action. And I did a couple of stories for the BBC uh, about Malawi and uh, the work that she did, because it wasn't just a case of giving cash to poor Malawians who had nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, what my mother did was provided the first generation of animals, be that chickens or goats or whatever. And then 
they would have to provide the next generation after. So they'd have to kind of obviously a male and female of each one. So they could basically help them to help themselves. And that was the key thing. Rather than just give someone cash and then just put out their hand and then keep putting out the hand, they basically help themselves going forward. And it's something that I saw firsthand. It was incredible work. And I did a piece about that, but also about um, the tobacco industry in Malawi. And um, yeah, very proud. That's so nice to hear. I love when when family members can inspire and also fuse with your work life, you know, because those sound like amazing stories. And it's just a bonus that your mom was behind a lot of it. Well, that's... Yeah. Um, yeah, no, she she has basically is a dynamic person, and I'd like to think I've inherited some of that, and I'd love if my two sons had in, inherited some of that dynamism, i.e. the idea of sitting on your hands uh, and kind of letting fate wash over you is not something that, that runs very thick in our blood. No, well, you, you, you've definitely shown that you've inherited those traits. Well, where can my listeners find you? um you're, you're on your i know you, you've got a website you've got a prolific twitter account would you like to share where the the joe lynam news feed is well i mean i i've got my own website which is joelynam.com l-y-n-a-m and um i like to blog on that the odd time um uh but i i, I don't blog on on kind of controversial issues of the day because uh, you know i work at the bbc i, I uh, we don't have any opinions as you know jill and uh, but i do blog on some of my adventures with the bbc and uh, as, as someone who's working in the media you will know um the media gives you great anecdotes the anecdotal value of working for a global organization which has sent me all over the world and i've met and interviewed some incredibly interesting people and um and I've got myself into awful sorts of scrapes. Um, and uh, yet I don't regret that one bit. I've been very, very lucky um, in what I've done. Uh, last year, I had passed a landmark birthday. And uh, at landmark birthdays, you always do an audit of your life, mm -hmm. uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. And there's been plenty of that. But mostly I'm a kind of fairly contented, contented guy. But I'd like to still think I've still got a lot to give. And um, I present, I'm presenting this evening, in fact, uh, the newsroom program on the BBC World Service uh, and the Global News Podcast, which obviously behind your podcast, Jill, is one of the most popular in the world. Um, and I also present two other podcasts. One is about the arts and culture. Amazingly enough, I never thought I'd be doing that. Um, that's called Unicast. And I also um, present an investor's uh, a podcast uh, in which uh, Connected Investor is the name of the podcast and which we discuss um, the, the markets and because I'm a business correspondent in my heart mm. and I'm always interested in what's going on in the world uh, at any one time. Well, I love you are across so many different subjects. I love it. And and the different platforms and types of media. You know, they like I, I love that you're you're no longer just the TV presenter, you're you're radio, you're blogging you are you're a true multimedia man so it's cool. yeah i am um, look lockdown was tough for a lot of people jill um uh, some people were lucky enough to see their income remain as it as it remained that i'd been in 2019 um my income like all the keynote events that i used you to speak at uh disappeared and because uh, I'm a freelance presenter on the BBC, uh, I didn't get as much presenting shifts as I'd like because they deservedly had to go to staff presenters. Um, so I just had to keep myself busy. And um, uh, that often means picking up the phone and talking to people and 
just doing new things. And that's very important. I'm, I, my guess is, Jill, the people that you interview, most of them are kind of dynamic people who are proactive rather than reactive, including your good self. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done this podcast. No, I think that's um, I think that's a great lesson for everyone that you can't just um, wait for the opportunities to come pouring in. You can't. You shouldn't. Um, uh, yeah. You won't. You won't go very far if you just sit on your hands and say, "Okay, come to me, fate, Mister Fate, knock on my door." You know, it's 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 the um, it's the old adage about the golfer. Um, uh, you're getting luckier. You're getting luckier and luckier every day. And then the golfer responds, "It's amazing how the more I practice, the luckier I seem to get." And before I let you go, could you share a scrape, a scrape from years gone by, from your illustrious broadcasting career? I, I love following your feeds, and I love when you share archival images from your reporting history. <laughs> off the top of your head, anything scrape or amusing story, challenge you encountered uh, along well, there was, the way? There, look, I'm very lucky. I've had so many. I'm trying to think the ones that I can uh, that I can say to a family audience. Um, there, I remember we interviewed the Prime Minister of Estonia and the night before, um, uh, this is uh, 2004 or something like that, uh, the, the night before uh, we had went out for a meal and we got fully refreshed, fully refreshed as, as they say. Um, but I got up on time to do the interview with the Prime Minister, it was just 9am, uh, but my producer struggled. My producer struggled and I had to bang on his door and literally drag him out of his bed and get up and you know obviously he did not look great and he did not smell great either <laughs> he didn't have time for a shower and so we did the interview and the prime minister was um, was very polite and all that kind of stuff and after we kind of stopped recording he leaned forward to my producer and said i see you make big party in estonia last night <laughs> <laughs> and we're just kind of sheepishly looking at each other and saying, yeah, and, you know, like, like naughty schoolboys. Spot on, Mr. Prime Minister, spot on. Oh, that is wonderful. Well, that is a, a great uh, ad for your social media feeds because you get great content like that. But the behind the scenes of the wonderful interviews. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for sharing your time and stories. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I really enjoy what you do uh, in your podcast, Jill. Um, the way you kind of, you make it seem very smooth when you up roots and move sticks from, you know, one environment to a very different environment. But other people struggle. They struggle with it and uh, they don't often settle in and often you don't often hear those stories like my wife for example uh, moved from estonia in 2005 to brussels and she had next to no french and very little english and uh, not a single friend didn't know anyone uh, and um, you know she, she made a success of it oh i would love to hear her story i mean i think some people want to move to another country but don't because they're afraid of that situation understandably because it's quite intimidating but it's wonderful to talk to people who've come out the other side and then have a fresh set of friends and new identity to yeah and not everybody can 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 last a lot of people go back jill a lot of people you know they give it a few months or or even less and they say no i can't take it it's too different it's too traumatic. I'm missing my friends. I'm missing my family. I'm going back. Uh, maybe there, there are people we should talk to as well. well. Well, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. And, and best wishes to both you and your family. And to all your listeners, Jill, stay well. Thanks a lot.